It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning as it is every Lord's Day. It's great being back with all of you after some time away on paternity leave. Um, everybody's doing great, a little sleep deprived, uh, but everybody's doing great. Uh, thank you for all of your care and support uh, over uh, this time, for your visits, for the meals that you guys have sent us, and uh, all the prayer that you guys have um, prayed for us. But most of all, I want to give praise and glory to the Lord for his amazing faithfulness throughout this whole process. Uh, as you guys remember, the last one was a little bit more eventful than this one, um, and the Lord has shown his faithfulness in so many small ways uh, through, throughout this whole process. There's a lot of great stories, uh, amazing uh, ways in which the Lord had revealed his goodness to our family, and I won't take the time to, to tell you all of that, but uh, after the service, come find me. It's, there are some really great stories. But we've got a lot to cover this morning, um, so let's get after it. Let's turn our attention to Jeremiah chapter 17. Um, if you would um, please pay attention as this is the word of the Lord. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And on the horns of their altar, while their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree, and on the high hills of the mount, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures, I will give as spoil as as the price for your high places for sin throughout your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his weights, according to the fruit of his deeds." Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she, doesn't, she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. And I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before, before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster, destroy them with double destruction. And thus said the Lord to me, go and stand in the people's gate, 
by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out from your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck that they may not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin, from the Cephalah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But you did not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Then I will kindle a fire in its gates and shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this passage, Lord, we are mindful of... uh, the many distractions in life that keep us from examining our own hearts. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us our sin, our neediness, um, the way in which we sit under judgment for that sin. Lord, we ask that you would remind us of that great gospel truth that you have uh, not forsaken us, but have sent your son to die on the cross for us. Lord, would we see that gospel message here in this passage in Jeremiah? Lord, would you speak clearly and loudly through me, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to start with uh, Luke Bryan, who is a country music star and unwitting theologian. (laughs) You're like, unwitting theologian? What? Specifically, I want to talk about his song title. Uh, I believe most people are good. I was uh, in the car with Dr. Silvernail earlier this week, and it came up on the radio, and You know, I understand what he's trying to say, and I think it's commendable. We want to be optimistic about humanity. We would like to think the best of those around us. And even if you're a longtime member of the church and can quote uh, Romans 3.23 that says that all have fallen short of the glory of God and thus none are good, you actually live your lives as Luke Bryan sings. It's simply too hard to walk around expecting everybody to be bad. It's too hard to live life as if uh, no one can be trusted. And so we don't. We live life like we believe most people are good. And that's why when bad things happen, when scandals happen, uh, such as the sexual abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention, which we learned about this past week, it's shocking. It's disappointing. It's grieving. And for those of you that haven't heard about this particular scandal, it's eye-opening and horrifying. The Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News published a report this past week on, on the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC for short. They looked at the last 20 years, and they looked really only at the convictions that were 
handed down. And they found that 220 pastors, deacons, elders, Sunday school teachers, and volunteers had been convicted of sex crimes or had received deferred plea deals. Of that 220, somehow 35 of them had been able to still return to jobs within the church, often pulpits. In some cases, a man had just gotten out of jail and served his seven-year term and promptly was hired to fill a pulpit at a church down the street from the jail. On top, of, on top of it all, the SBC leadership is rightly criticized for failing to take appropriate steps to prevent and address abuse, even when it was brought to their attention. They estimate that something like 700 victims were abused in the last 20 years. And of course, that's only the tip of the iceberg, because these represent only those that have been convicted. There are many, many more that we just simply don't know about. And for many of us, this hits a lot closer to home than the abuses and scandals in the Catholic Church. The SBC is a relatively conservative evangelical denomination. They are, in a lot of intents and purposes, our cousins. And, you know, a wave of articles have already been written about this, and I commend many of them to you. But I couldn't help but notice how this whole saga illustrates Jeremiah 17 so very well. And I think that Jeremiah 17 gives us good insight into why something like this has happened and, to how, and how to have a thoughtful Christian response. And so we're going to start where Jeremiah and the gospel start, with sin. And we're going to walk through, as we walk through the passage, we're going to see Jeremiah walk us through each part of the gospel. Sin, then God's surpassing goodness, our salvation, and then thoughts on how to live in light of that salvation. And this makes sense, you know. We ought to be looking at uh, events, especially sinful ones, through gospel lenses. So let's dive right in. Part one, dueling hearts. We're going to get two, two men here. The first one is the one who trusts in man, the one who trusts in man. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altar. While their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price for your high places, for sin throughout your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Jeremiah here is placing blame for the consequences and judgment that are coming Judah's way squarely on Judah's sinful hearts. Sure, they're getting judged for doing sinful things. But Jeremiah seems to be placing emphasis on the abiding sinfulness of their hearts. You see, there's a big difference between saying, oh, I did something wrong, and saying, oh, I did something wrong because there is something wrong with me. Jeremiah is saying there that it's not just that the Israelites are doing bad things by having altars and ashram, which are idols, by the way. It's not just that they're sinning by doing bad things, but they're sinning because at their very core, they're bad. 
Their sin is written on their very hearts. It's engraved. And when we begin to take measure of the fact that we sin because we're sinners, not that sin makes us sinners, that we begin to grasp our true situation. The problem isn't so much what I do, but who I am. And that's reinforced down in verses 5 to 6 and in verse 9. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And here's the verse that is really going to sink it uh, for us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I keep getting stuck on this verse, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It reminds me of Romans 7, 7, 18. There Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Do you see the human condition? The heart, the human heart desires one thing and one thing only, the fulfillment of its every whim. It's totally self-absorbed. It cares nothing about what God desires. It trusts in and chases after the things of man. And as we look at the scandal in the SBC, we can see that the hearts of the abusers and those that defended them are not looking for righteousness. They're not looking for justice and for the flourishing of God's people. Rather, they're chasing after the fulfillment of their own selfish and sinful desires. Maybe it's sexual gratification. Maybe it's a desire to not have to deal with a messy situation. Maybe it's a desire to avoid the bad publicity that might torpedo your, quote-unquote, growing ministry. Do you see the focus of each of these? It's certainly not about being faithful to the Lord. It's about me and what I want. And so the one who trusts in man, who chases after the things of man, he is cursed. And that means that there are consequences for his sin. Verses 10 and 11 remind us that ultimately there will be consequences and judgment. It might not happen in this life, but it certainly will in the next. Listen quickly. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds, like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch. So it is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. God promises that he sees all, knows all, and then judges all, just as Frank prayed just a minute ago. He had better believe that judgment and justice is coming for sin. Because God's character demands justice to be done. And for those that sinned against children, there's even more wrath on the way. Matthew 18.6 makes that abundantly clear. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a giant millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. You know, this, this passage gets to me. The scandal gets to me as a pastor, as pastors, elders, and deacons, and authority figures in the church. When abuse comes from one of us, it destroys the trust that these children have in, in men of God. It destroys the trust that they had 
in God. And our sin is all the greater for it. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to know better. And your pastors and your elders are supposed to even know even better than that. And we're supposed to be better. But so often we're not. And so again, as we look at the abuses and the cover-up, it's right for us to call a spade a spade. It's right for us to shine the light of truth upon them and their actions. Simply, simply put, this, the actions of the abusers and those that defended them are sinful. We ought to say that. We ought to stand up and shout that. The abusers themselves and those that defended them are sinful. We ought to say that too. They're worthy of wrath and judgment, just like the Israelites were deserving of wrath and judgment for deserting God and cheating on him with worthless, worthless idols. Their actions, the Israelites, both those in the, sinful, uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention and the Israelites, reveal them to be, by nature, children of wrath and dead in their transgressions. And that's why we keep seeing this happen, because our hearts are desperately wicked, and they're deceitful above all else. But that's not the only story, right? In order to have a duel, we have to have two sides. So we've got one, one side. What's on the other? The one who trusts in the Lord. Who's fighting back against the sin and depravity that grip the human heart? We only get three verses. Verses 7, 8, and 10. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water and sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. If this language sounds familiar, it's because we used it in our call to worship. Jeremiah intentionally uses the, the language of Psalm 1 to, to call to mind this man of God. What a picture we get. He is a man whose trust is not only in the Lord, but whose trust is the Lord. Think about that for a second. We get a picture of a man whose trust is not only in the character of God, but in the person of him. There's a relationship, a personal connection to the Almighty that gives him security despite the hard outward circumstances. God is not just good and holy, but he's good and holy for him who trusts in him. And it's also impossible to hear Psalm 1 and to not also hear Psalm 2. Because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 work together as a gateway to the entire Psalter. They describe the Lord of the Psalms, the true psalmist, so to speak, the one who can rightly use the Psalms. And so listen quickly to Psalm 2, 1 through 9. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits on the Lord sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. It's great. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Do you hear what's happening to that other side? Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I hope you think instantly of Jesus. It's supposed to make you think about Jesus. Jesus alone is the blessed man who trusts completely in the Lord. Jesus alone is the son who will, set, who will be set up as king of Zion on what Jeremiah 17 calls that glorious throne set on high from the beginning, which is our place of sanctuary. And Philippians 2 tells us why he has this place. And listen closely for the gospel. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jeremiah is saying that the anointed is the blessed man. Jeremiah is saying that on the one hand, you have the depraved hearts, of humanity, and on the other, you have God himself and his anointed. And they duel. There's a war going on. But the big question is, where do the faithful people of God fit into all this, into this division? Because on the one hand, you've got the condemned, and on the other, you have God. But where do, where do Christians come in? Do we stand over here with the depraved, or do we stand with the Lord? And the answer is Yes. And that's where Jeremiah lands. Look with me at verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Remember who Jeremiah is. He's the prophet of the Lord. If there's anyone that could say that he stands with the Lord, it'd be Jeremiah. He spent years preaching an unpopular, dangerous message of repentance to a wicked people, all for the sake of the Lord. He himself has said in, here in chapter 17 that he did not run away from being the Lord's shepherd, that he spoke faithfully of destruction and judgment of all people. He should be able to stand up and say, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord completely. But he doesn't. The first thing out of his mouth about himself is a plea for healing and a plea for salvation because he knew that his heart was just like that of his countrymen. It was only through the grace and providence of God that he had not been as wicked as the rest of God's people. And so the, word, the Lord's words of admonition, of condemnation, of judgment are for Jeremiah too. And they're for us too. Because Jeremiah knows, just as we do, deep down we are not perfect. Deep down we know, just as Jeremiah does, that our hearts are not always with the Lord's but rather out for themselves, for ourselves. And so what we have is the faithful being mindful of being in both camps. We know what is right, it's right and good. We desire to stand with the Lord, but we also know that we're a bunch of messed up people. What we have is a war within ourselves. And if we go back to Romans 7, we hear it from Paul. For I delight in the, Lord, the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members 
another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what this teaches us is to do the same thing that Jeremiah does, which is run, not walk, run to the Lord. We run to the Lord pleading for him to change us, to heal us, to save us. And it's a humble response. It's a response that knows well the wickedness of the human heart. And for us, that should be our first reaction. When we look at the SBC's abuses, when we look at any abuses, for that matter, our first reaction must always be one of humility. And it's usually not so. Because for most of us, we can't fathom doing this. We couldn't fathom doing what these people have done. But do you know what terrifies me about all of this? And what ought to give you guys pause? Is that these men, most of these men, are more godly than I am. When they, before they did th- these terrible things. And if they could do it, I could do it. It's well within my capability to be an abuser. It's well within my capability to do the worst things that you could possibly imagine. This could be easily me. This could be easily Dr. Dave. This could be easily Dave Doris. This could be easily any one of your elders or deacons or volunteers. This could be you, easily. And so before we react with righteous indignation, we must remember that but for the grace of God, there go I. And so what do we do? We plead and we pray and live as faithfully as we can, trusting the Lord the whole way. And the whole thing, this whole thing is Jeremiah's prayer that the Lord would do something. This whole chapter is about, Lord, would you do something, please? We want things to change because we know that the status quo is broken. And so we can rightfully call on the Lord to, to either save or to judge. If we take those two responses, to either save or to judge, you know, generally praying for salvation is hard. Because when we look at abusers and those that protect them, do we honestly pray for their healing and their salvation? It feels somewhat wrong to pray for them, right? To hope for change. If you're anything like me, you say that you do, right? You say, oh, I'll pray for salvation and healing and I, pray, I wish that they would change. But then you secretly wish for them a special place in hell for what they did. They abuse children. Children. But do you see the hypocrisy? And why we must remember our own sinful dispositions. We too are massive sinners. Maybe not in this particular way of abusing children or abusing others, but certainly in other ways. And we, you know, even though we haven't abused children, or at least I hope we haven't, we'd be wrong to say that we don't have it in us to do so. And yet the Lord saved us from our sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's the point of grace. It's wildly undeserved. We're just as undeserving as the next person, regardless of what they've done. 
and now how we ought to be humble and thoughtful of our own sin, we most certainly, and we most certainly can condemn sin, right? We ought to condemn sin. It's absolutely right to pray for judgment upon sinners, as Jeremiah does in verses 18 and 27. And really, Jeremiah is just praying for justice to happen. And we ought not to only pray for justice, but to pursue it. It's not enough to offer thoughts and prayers. We need to be active in pursuing what is right and just. And that means that we should, in every single case, report suspected child abuse to the civil authorities. The civil authorities are placed there by God to restrain evil. Plus, when we do so, we, it makes us deal with our sins openly so that the purity and the credibility of the church is maintained. For cases of abuse with uh, adults, the church ought to provide a place of safety to walk with them as they bring in authorities to pursue justice and healing. In everything, the church ought to bring to light the sin that has been committed. We ought not to run from it or hide from it. We ought to bring it out so that true repentance might be seen. Russell Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC, put it this way. Jesus does not cover up sin within the temple of his presence. He brings everything hidden to light. And we should too. When we downplay or cover over what has happened in the name of Jesus to those he loves, we are not protecting Jesus' reputation. We're instead, instead fighting Jesus himself. No church should be frustrated by the Houston Chronicles reporting, but we should thank God for it. The judgment seat of Christ will be far less reticent than a newspaper series to uncover what should never have been hidden. And that's hard and costly and somehow unpopular, but it's what's godly. It also means that we strive to prevent the abuse from happening in the first place, especially here in small churches like ours. We never think that one of our own is an abuser, but we don't truly know each other all that well. And so here at Potomac Hills, we have protection, child protection policies in place. We try to have two adults in the rooms at all times. We do background checks, and we, we're beginning to make a habit of running those regularly. We also have protocols for reporting as well, all because we know that the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And finally, if you've been a victim of abuse, I can't imagine what you've been through. I want you to hear that from the pulpit. I, I can't imagine what you've been through and what you're currently going through. But please, don't stay silent. There is no shame, no guilt, no blame upon you. You are absolutely not to blame. We, the church, are called to stand with you, to do what the Lord does in Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. And so I encourage you, if you've been abused, to come talk to me or one of the other pastors or one of the elders. If you don't want to talk one-on-one, -on -one, that's okay. We'd love to meet with you in a small group. And if you don't trust us pastors because you've been abused by a pastor, I totally understand. We have a whole list of counselors that are ready and happy to talk to you through this. And if you're a woman that doesn't want to talk to a man about abuse, I understand that too. 
A number of counselors on our list are women. Please go talk to them. If you're not at a place to talk, I would commend to you this book. Justin and Lindsay Holcomb's book, Rid of My Disgrace. Okay? There are great resources in the back of it for more reading. All of this to say, the church will stand with you because the Lord stands with you. And so after we remind ourselves of our own need of grace, we do stand with the Lord. We are to be Christ's hands and feet to a broken world. And when we see sin, we ought to call it sin and deal with it. But verse 9 keeps ringing in our ears. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so how do we know if we're living from a heart of depravity or a heart with the Lord? How do we know which heart we're operating from? If my heart is deceitful above all things, how can I know which heart I'm operating from? Even when I feel like I might be faithfully serving, I might be simply deceiving myself. And so how do I know? And this is a common uh, question, and one that Jeremiah knows is coming. If we can't trust our own hearts, how can we know anything? And so there's this one big section at the end of the passage that I haven't talked about yet. This Sabbath section, the Sabbath keeping that sort of seems to sort of drop in out of nowhere. It, it's actually kind of funny. One of the commentators thought, this has nothing to do with anything. And so he labeled this as a miscellaneous file of Jeremiah. But what we see is we see it as a litmus test of faith. It shows us and reveals us what is going on in our hearts. God says, if you want to know, you want to know if you're faithful, do you keep the Sabbath? It's a good test because it reveals what drives your life. If your life is all about you and getting what you want, then the Sabbath is going to get in the way of that. Because instead of working towards your dreams for seven days, you're only working towards it six days. And in the New Testament, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. And so we don't keep the Sabbath to justify ourselves, certainly, but celebrating the Lord's Day and devoting the day to worship and the fellowship with other believers is definitely a mark of faith. If you don't take worship seriously... There might be a, that might be a sign that you would be deceiving yourself about your true faith, whether or not you have true faith. There are a lot of other litmus tests as well. And I'd point out two. Two questions that you can ask yourself. Am I doing this for me? And does this display the fruit of, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? right? Do you see this fruit in your life? Do you see sanctification in your life that makes you more humble, not by being more self-deprecating or thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less often? That you're less about you and more about others? If so, if you're seeing that, if you're seeing fruit, great, you're good. Keep on, keep on that pathway. But if you're not, if you don't see those fruit, these judgment statements ought to make you sit up and pay attention. And so how can we wrap up? Because we're out of time. I want to leave it this way. As we look over our lives and as we react to sin, both in the church and outside of it, we want to ask of ourselves 
and of our reactions. Did Christ need to die on a cross for me to react this way? You see, the gospel gets rid of both extremes. He probably didn't need to die for me to just self-righteously blow every sinner away. And he probably didn't need to die just for me to roll over and do nothing. He died so that I might grieve sin truly, that I might run to him for healing and salvation, that I might not stay in, in an ivory tower, but might stand for the weak and the vulnerable, that I would get down in the muck and mire of life and sin and brokenness, hurt and shame, to show Christ to those that our Lord and Savior loves. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, as we look out upon our world, as we look out upon the abuses that we see within the church that ought never to have happened, Lord, our, heart, our hearts break. They break with yours over the sin and brokenness. And Lord, would we see those sins as sins that are well within our capability of doing? Lord, would you make us humble people that respond in love and grace, that do not come in high-handed and condescending, but in humility? Lord, would you make us people that are committed to um, the work of healing? And Lord, would we not be people that stay pristine, but that we would do as you did, to be with people in their brokenness and their shame so that we might show them the surpassing goodness of your gospel, that you have made for us new life and life eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name.